Hi, I'm Deb Seminary, and I'm sitting here with my husband, Mike, the host of Mike Seminary and Friends. It's been a little over a year since he started these podcasts, and I kind of want to know, Mike, how's it going? It's been over a year? Oh, my Lord, it's gone so fast. I'm having so much fun, and thanks to you, I wouldn't be doing it. Well, I'm certainly glad that I came up with the idea. It has been keeping you busy and occupied and not bothering me too much. So. And I've paid you a boatload of money for all the work you're doing, haven't I? Oh, yeah. Yep. I okay, really, so I cook meals. I appreciate that. Um, but let's talk about the guests. You've had some really cool guests. You've talked to musicians. You've even had musicians play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, some authors. Uh, Entrepreneurs. People I've never met, I, one way or another, another stumble into them, and I've and I've learned a lot. I've never read so much in preparing by preparing for who I'm going to interview, and it's been a gas. Research is important, isn't it? It is. Yep, and I'm really glad that you just don't use Wikipedia, and that's the only thing. I'm glad you really died. What's Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I read a lot. I mark up books. I buy too many books. Eh, maybe not too many. It's okay. You're retired. You don't have anything else to do. And so, who are you going to have on this week? I don't know. Let's listen and find out. Okay. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Gotcha. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest a guy I really refer to as a rainmaker. From manufacturing to natural resources, attracting capital, finding new markets and opportunities, to cryptocurrency mining, which is just way over my head, and so much more. He, as the commissioner of the North Dakota Department of Commerce and his team, are making things happen for North Dakota. James Lamont, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, as we had connected to, to line this up, what I was trying to do was talk about the importance of manufacturing to North Dakota, the economic development infrastructure of the state. And to that end, I have folks like Howard Dahl, uh, Jody Mion, Kristen Ledger, uh, Hedger, excuse me, um, and then you, because I thought, I thought that's a perfect combination of what we could talk about. But as I, as I really started digging into what you and your team do, what commerce is supposed to do, it's far more than manufacturing. And today, because of technology and so many advancements, Many of the things we're doing in the state are more process-related, but as, as we talked before we started recording, processing and manufacturing kind of like kissing cousins. And so I want to be able to give you the opportunity to talk about some of the very specific projects that's in your team are working on, because they're big, and they're big for North Dakota. So that's just kind of an opening. By the way, thank you for your, your service to our country. Uh, appreciate you so much, especially during Operation Enduring Freedom. So I'm going to use that as a question. What did that part of your life do for you to tee you up 
to what you're doing today? Mike, that's an excellent question. Um, well, I, I think it took a, a teenage boy, basically, who grew up, uh, grew up in North Jersey, um, literally just outside of New York City. So, you know, I was New York City's backyard, effectively. And um, <clears throat> I, uh, I joined the Army at 18, and then by 19, I was deployed. <laughs> so it was really fascinating because the first year of my military experience was training because I, I chose a career path in the army that, uh, or an occupation really, because I didn't make it a career, um, that, that had just a year's worth of training practically to become an intelligence analyst. And then um, subsequently, um, because I, I spoke other languages, I was trained as a human intelligence collector. So I got, I got to do two very unique things for a 19-year-old that was deployed. And that was, one, uh, analyze real-time intelligence that had real impacts on not only the security to our country, but on the people that were deployed downrange. And two, as a 19-year-old, I, I literally was part of interrogation teams with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. I mean, so there's really no experience in life that I think helps somebody graduate to adulthood so quickly. And um, that coupled with the subsequent several years I did in the military and the leadership training, I, I, I became a really early sergeant. I was only 20 years old when I became an army sergeant. And, um, you know, right away you're put in these leadership positions. And so that experience coupled with um, seeing the world for what it really is, or at least my perception of what it really is, uh, and watching sort of the world evolved from one black swan event every few years to the next, even though now it's, it seems like we have one every three months, um, was, was just really a catalyst for growth and development. And frankly, for the rest of my, you know, and that was ironically this month, uh, 20 years ago, I deployed. So it's kind of crazy to think that really about half of my lifetime ago, <laughs> I was doing that. But, you know, it, it really prepared me for bigger and better challenges later in life. I ended up doing a little bit over a decade in the Intel community, both as an armed services member and then basically doing the same work, except for instead of 17 grand a year as a army specialist, I got to make decent money for, for deployments as a DOD and State Department civilian and stuff. So I did basically the same work, but it, it naturally prepared me very well, I think, for uh, the, the role I'm in now, and that is seeing the world from a very aggregated perspective and understanding the nuances and the analytics that helped me achieve a certain objective. And so that, that experience, in my opinion, was, um, was the catalyst I needed professionally, but also educationally. Uh, I, you know, I'm a son of a truck driver. Uh, my father and my mom kind of did welding, some admin assistant stuff. So, you know, high school graduates in I wasn't ready for college, and um, the military also inspired me to do the very best that I could. And so um, here I am with a PhD also, not because I ever thought I would get a PhD or that's how I would traditionally follow footsteps of a family member, but as the first person to get a college degree, I think the Army basically pointed me in that direction because I knew if I wanted to do better, um, I had to build the analytical skill set and then also the resume. And ironically, I kept going in education because, well, I just found everything to be super fascinating. 
And so I thought, oh, I'll run just to, to, to ground and you, know, you can't go any much further than a dissertation. So um, it's been a good ride. I'll tell you that, Mike. It's been an amazing ride. And um, I'm very thankful for the, to the Army, actually, for, for those experiences. And then also, I, uh, behind me is my family. Uh, I wouldn't have met my wife had I not been stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington State. So, I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of where the military took me and everything from my professional to my personal and academic pursuits. I can directly attribute to that experience. So super grateful. Hmm. A moment ago, you used the phrase, and this isn't exactly how you said it. I never thought I would have. And with regards to the PhD, I'm going to bring that comment back in a moment. But I want to go back to something you were talking about with regards to your interrogation skills that you developed. To be a good interrogator, I'm assuming you have to be able to ask critical questions that are meaningful and then be able to be a good listener and then to the analytics and the other things you're talking about, then process that information. That's fairly correct. You actually summarized it pretty well. Those are also skill sets that are very important to your boss, Governor Doug Burgum. I have heard him say more than once the a skill that a person should develop, and he ta taught this to his children, is to be able to ask good, meaningful uh, questions, questions that um, give you good information, because that's really important. Information, or nowadays data, and then being able to use it is critically important. So I, as you said that, I immediately see one of the reasons, and there are many, why Doug, Governor Doug Burgum saw you as the perfect person for this role. And I agree. Having, as you well know, been involved with the Commerce Department for a number of years. Now back to the comment that you made, I never thought I would have, paraphrasing what you said. Seven years ago, when you were the city administrator of a fairly small city of about 1,700 people in Minnesota, did you ever think that seven years later you would be leading a team working on over $30 billion worth of incredibly important economic development project for the state of North Dakota? <laughs> no. And frankly, I never thought I was going to be a city administrator in northern Minnesota either. So, so it's really it's fascinating in that the, the career trajectory was was the Intel community. And I, I fully intended on doing that, but, um, you know, life changes and you realize maybe a, a family isn't quite, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily correspond well to a career where you're constantly gone, you know, and I do a lot of travel for this job, but it's like, you know, one or two days a week. So, and which is a lot for a lot of people, but you know, in that community, you're gone for extended periods. And so, um, I, I always thought that was my trajectory because I, I love the work. In fact, I, uh, I, I constantly think about it, especially when I see conflicts like what's happening now. I'm thinking, wow, if this were a decade ago, how would I be how would have I been contributing to this? Um, but my, my point is um, life has just been really unique. I never thought I'd live in North Dakota. I never thought I'd live in Minnesota. Like I said, I was an East Coast kid and I was living in Washington, D.C. when a recruiter uh, 
basically found me at the right place at the right time and convinced me to move to Ada, Minnesota. Um, because I, I thought, okay, I, I recognize my career path's on, you know, it's not sustainable and, uh, I can do a PhD and I can manage a town and, and then who knows what will happen after that. Never thought that Jay Schuler, my predecessor's predecessor, uh, I met him by happenstance and he recruited me to come work at commerce. Never thought I would work in a cabinet, like before I was 40. Like, or even in general, I did run for office once, which I never thought I would do either. But, you know, you live one time, like legitimately you get one shot. I'm not really into the reincarnation thing. And so I, I feel like you've got to invest your, your time, talents and resources as well as you can, because you got one shot at this thing. And so it's been just the last decade has been just a um, trajectory of randomness. <laughs> And it's, you know what, though, it's, it's been fun. Like, it, that's the thing. Everything about it has been extremely fun. So that to me is, is equally as important as how I got here. It's, uh, you know, whether or not you're enjoying it. Like, I, I loved the three and a half years I spent in Ada. I thought the people there were among the world's finest. And I never really understood what a sense of community was until I lived there. And then, then you move to North Dakota, and it's like one big Ada. Um, you just reverse the ratio of Norwegians to Germans, but, and, and I mean, really, it, you know, and, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and, and the, you know, it's, it's nice to be uh, not only, you know, separate work for a moment, but we're members of a community. Like we are genuinely part of something that somebody grows up in a high rise and, you know, the, the, the nation's largest metropolitan area never really understands. Like, you don't know who your neighbors are. You see them in the hallway with the, you know what smells come from which apartment because you know who's cooking what. And you're like, man, those guys, they're always cooking and it just stinks up the hallway. But um, you don't really know who people are. And then you get to a town like Ada or a state like North Dakota and suddenly that sense of community becomes real. And since I've been here, you know, in North Dakota for, I've been, uh, in May, it'll be four years. And you think about just the massive amounts of challenges that the people in this administration have had to face from the virus to the droughts, to wildfires, to volatility in, you know, the two largest sectors of the economy. Like, and I'm not just talking about volatility, but like, you know, there's a $200 delta between where oil's trading and where it bottomed out during the coronavirus, you know, the peak of the virus or whatever. And, you know, and so it's really fun to live in a place where community can come together like this and address these challenges together. There are naturally a lot of disputes. I mean, that's just the way it is when you have a community or one big family, but North Dakota, in my opinion, is the epitome of a state that super unique and has the ability to solve um, very complex challenges to keep us ahead of everybody else. So it's, uh, that's why we're here. Yeah. I've often said, James, one of, and I don't know that we talk about this enough. One of the things that, at least in my opinion, is pretty unique to places like North Dakota, where you have the most extreme conditions to deal with, whether it's 
30 below, 110 above, tornadoes, drought, too much rain, flooding, uh, poor economy, that there's no market for what you're producing, uh, work, uh, workforce shortages, all of that. And then you have political differences, as my good friend Klaus Lemke refers to it as sometimes barking. People are barking. I think because of our history of pretty sparsely populated, dealing with all those conditions that are very, very challenging on the human body and spirit, at the end of the day, we still have each other's back. And if you don't have each other's back, you, it's really difficult to get through those things because on your own, it's like almost impossible. And I, th I think that's kind of how you just said that. I just, I just don't know that we say it often enough where we have some differences uh, about policy or approaches. At the end of the day, we still have to have each other's back. And I think we do a pretty good job of doing that, generally speaking. Let me ask you about, uh, and I'm going to start this with the uh, cryptocurrency mining announcement up in uh, the Williston area. For, you know, first of all, I, my, my brother-in-law is the CEO of an engineering company over in London, where the majority of the work that they do in Europe and Asia, and, and they're, they're a, a division of a monster company, they do data centers, data centers everywhere. And that's, I think that's really what a crypto mining center is. It's a kind of a, a data center. But I looked up exactly what that means because I, again, cryptocurrency is just way, way over my head. And it says, verif this is a very simple, short definition, verifies and adds transactions to the blockchain. So help me understand a little more about what this center uh, will will do when it's up and operational. So I, I think you summarized it well. It's, it's one massive data center, but it's a much more sophisticated data center, if you will. Um, so separate cryptocurrency from blockchain. Um, blockchain is, is effectively uh, the underlying infrastructure, if you will, the technology behind all of this. Um, so, so what it basically means is um, it's a system where uh, peer systems, meaning let's say 50,000, 100,000, 5 million, you know, computers or systems across the network are effectively all acting as digital ledgers so that when a transaction occurs, by having all of them verify the information a certain way, it makes it much more difficult for fraud. So blockchain as a function is the underlying tech that enables all of these other things to come to fruition. So <clears throat> you have to forgive me, I have a sinus infection. So by having this sort of the secure, this anonymous and really a, a unanimous and unanimity is the key. Because if you look at what blockchain is, it's, you know, you can have 1500 systems uh that that have to agree to something oh boy my pomeranian excuse me that's okay okay there we go 
So yeah, you, unanimity is critical, right? And and so you can have all of these systems have to unanimously say yes. It's anonymous, meaning it's distributed and it's super secure. So that's like the underlying tech. And then when you get into the mining space, all of this activity has to happen in sequence. So it costs a lot of money, given that there are limited amounts of, say, Bitcoin or other what are called altcoins, Bitcoin and everything else. If it's Arethium, if it's whatever, it's called an, altco an altcoin. So in effect, uh, what you're seeing in the state is um, not only the the blockchain technology technological investments, but you're also seeing more or less uh, super complex mathematical algorithms using really high tech systems. And you know, if you take the Williston one that we announced, you know, you're you're talking over 1.9 billion dollars with a B of programming systems, you know, just expensive computers, data centers, circuits, all of these things that are consuming massive amounts of electricity in order to effectively mine these limited Bitcoin, right? And so to mine them, you've got to get all of the sequences properly, etc. And so that that's what's that's what you're effectively finding on, on the Bitcoin side. Now on in other altcoins it could be everything from carbon trading to real estate transactions to you name it, they've got it. Like if I open my Coinbase wallet right now and take a look at, you know, like what I'm invested in, um, you know, I can tell you precisely, you know, as I look at my assets, I've got about 15 various ones, right? So I've got uh, a carbon credit one that I like to trade because, well, it's been making me a lot of money as of late. And then you've got things that uh like like chiles right which is a, an arethium token and that'll power certain things and people are paying for these power you know th this power or, or these transactions and then you've got you know just there's a cryptocurrency for just about everything that we would have done in real life but now they're basically automating it so it's a currency but at the same time it's a store of value that enables certain transactions to come to fruition and then you can leverage those values to get higher rates of return on, you know, lending to peers for, hey, I'm going to go buy an apartment building and hey, I want to contribute 200 bucks to that. And I can do that and get 8% against something that I've leveraged or whatever the case is. So it's, it's complex, but at the same time, the fundamental baseline is the blockchain tech. But blockchain tech also does logistics and supply chain uh you know, configurations that, you know, if you pay a premium for a soy product, well, now you know that the identity preservation has been tracked from farm to processor to container to train to ship back to train back to container. And all of this gets run also via the same tech. So there's a real world situation for all of these things, but then there's trading that's happening around it. And it just requires super sophisticated data centers like the ones you're starting to see pop up here in the state that require massive amounts of energy. And North Dakota is super attractive because we have abundant gas and we also have um, inexpensive electric produ electricity production. So those two factors combined make it more profitable for a cryptocurrency miner to invest in large assets here. Thanks for that explanation. And I wanted to start with the crypto mining center 
kind of going back to how I opened this up, where, where maybe the best example might be cotton. So wherever the cotton is uh, grown and farmed, let's say Levi Strauss or Levi needs cotton for jeans. So the cotton is moved to wherever that plant is and so that's a value add. They poop out jeans, for example, pardon my French. So that that's one, probably the most common vision people have or picture that people have for manufacturing. It's got that raw product that then turns out something very specific like a gene. And we, we I'm sure we have some other examples like that, for example, over uh, the soybean processing plant, for example. What made the Williston area, and maybe this is a selfish question, a perfect location for that operation to locate the $1.9 billion crypto mining operation? In, in that instance, it's a combination of factors. One, um, Montreal Williams, which they were jointly part of the announcement, they were offer, they were able to offer them uh, a very competitive rate on high volumes of electricity. Uh, that coupled with, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of gas that we produce in that region, and that's, you know, part of the mix. So having sort of access to, I mean, every, everything's in flux the last two weeks uh, because of the, you know, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But before then, if you were to look at energy prices and uh, in that part of the state, as well as, you know, just sort of how they compared against other parts of the Midwest and subsequently the Intermountain West, um, you know, the, the, the factors that made it super special there were it's inexpensive for they were able to get, you know, land for a decent rate. They were able to get access to electricity for a decent rate. Uh, the weather is a little less extreme there than the eastern part of the state. Uh, and sort of all these factors come together to create what is more or less a more uh, effective situation for that particular project. I, I will tell you, though, I mean, you, you saw in you know, this gets it's amazing. Like we're stopping two hundred million dollar announcements now towards the bottom. But it was it uh, we had a large announcement uh, in Grand Forks, not Texas Instruments. Uh, let me see here, you know, be, right as we we're getting, you know, started in terms of the, the sort of the rapid fire, um, you know, projects, Core Scientific announced a major project in Grand Forks, right? So that for them, the economics worked the best there. And then um, we've got other parts of the state that are being considered for other ones. And then the, you know, the legislature actually, before all of these announcements, actually um, passed a very unique uh, unique meaning for the state. Obviously, a lot of other Western states have done this too, but there are unique tax incentives for data centers in particular here in the state. So you couple that with the less expensive electricity and then depending on the business model of the data center, whether it's Grand Forks, whether it's Jamestown, whether it's Williston, whatever, um, everybody seems to have something that works best for their particular uh, business model. And so for the $2 billion trend, you know, facility um, for for that particular <coughs> Bitcoin mining operation, Williston was the preferred location. But like I said, there are other operations yeah. that their models are slightly different. And as a result, they're looking elsewhere in the state. Yeah, I've had the, you know, the privilege and luxury of 
hearing you and your team talk about this uh, over time because of my role on the board. And to your point, there are significant projects. I don't want to say all over the state because that's a bit of an exaggeration, but they're located where uh, the, the resources, the talent and um, incentives or opportunities are perfect. You know, the, the other example up in that area is the gas to liquids plant, which is huge. And you worked on that for a period of time. I'm going to list some off and then if you want to go into a couple of particulars and there's a reason why I'm doing it this way. And then the soybean processing plant over in Castleton and the recent carbon capture uh, announcement with Harold Ham and Continental Resources. Uh, I think that was over in the Castleton area. And then Grand Farm over, you know, for, for all practical purposes, Fargo, but just a little bit south of Fargo, and which makes so much sense because of the ag, the ag activity in the valley, access to uh, talent and tech through the NDSU, et cetera, et cetera. As you um, visit with potential investors that want to bring these types of opportunities to the state, what is the greatest asset, if that's a fair question, statewide that you have the opportunity to promote? And then what might be one of the challenges that we as a state have to address and might have a hard time actually addressing it? The, the biggest attributes as I talk to you today, and, and this is going to be for the foreseeable future, <clears throat> is the ability to produce amazing amounts of oil and gas. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because people are always, you know, since the inception of the state of North Dakota, everybody's focused on diversification. But those two attributes right now, as I speak to you, are by far the biggest and best. And the reason why is when you combine the geological capability to store carbon, yet produce a carbon neutral barrel of oil or a carbon neutral molecule of natural gas or a sustainable aviation fuel or a fertilizer or you fill in the blank, North Dakota is among the only states in the country and there are very few that has sort of all of the geological, geographic, and production attributes to basically meet European, Asian, North American clean energy demand. You don't have the same capture and storage capabilities in the Permian. You don't have the near, you don't have the same production capacity in the Marcellus. And so North Dakota becomes the place where you can do clean hydrogen. You could do gas to liquids. You could do um, ag to energy conversion, like soy crushing sites to meet biofuel markets. You could do the largest bioethanol facility in the world in Grand Forks, which takes waste and converts it to bioethanol, again, to feed premium markets. And so North Dakota, at least for the next 10 to 20 years now, that's changing a little bit because of the last two weeks and sort of the inability probably for Ukrainian farmers to plant wheat. So I don't want to discount ag. But the biggest sales pitch that we have that makes people really interested in our state 
<clears throat> are the factors of being able to meet national investment and private sector demand for clean energy solutions. Pure, plain, and simple. When I go to boardrooms in the United States, when I go, you know, we're working hard on Japanese clients right now. When I work with Canadians, doesn't matter where I go. Their investors require an environmental, social, corporate governance score that North Dakota is one of the few states can offer. We also offer, like I said, the ability to, to capture gas. And because of the abundance, I don't want to call it cheap gas. I know in the past, everybody said we're flaring away hundreds of millions. But what we do have here is slightly cheaper gas than where spot markets exist, like in Alberta, the Gulf Coast, it's called Mount Bellevue, the Ventura market. There are various markets, right? And because of that attribute, we can offer any company on planet Earth the only place to have slightly discounted gas. But when you're talking 250, 350 cubic feet, million cubic feet a day for feedstock, that adds up fast. And then the ability to capture the impurities and carbon that's produced and store it. And then the ability to add value to it one, two, three times over. That exists nowhere else in the United States right now. And that's why people, and you've seen these rapid fire announcements of gas to liquids, you know, cleanest hydrogen slash, or rather, the, you know, the cheapest hydrogen in North America. And, the, you know, the largest biofuels expansion in decades, you know, and we're working on siting half a dozen corn to jet fuel sites, although I don't know how, you know, every, I, I suspect everybody's going to transition to weed as fast as they can, given how it's trading right now you know, at least for the foreseeable future. And so I don't know how that's going to impact, you know, those corn and jet fuel projects that up until two weeks ago were like top of everybody's list for sustainable aviation fuels. But again, even the Europeans are changing their outlook because they recognize in the short term, we've got some challenges. But up until two weeks ago, all of these attributes came together and they came together here. And then the foresight from previous administrations, governors, that is, as well as our congressional delegation, our existing governor, and in the state legislature to create programs that made the most sense. Now, to go to your second part of the question, we live in a state where, and rightfully so, we have libertarian philosophies. Just, we live all the way out here, why should... Washington, D.C., tell us X, Y, and Z. It's just a, it's a natural consequence of being, just like we talked about, you know, the, the communities that work together, solve challenges together, and we never needed that national capital, really, for much. But the challenge we have is, to compete globally, we've got to be able to continue articulating a value proposition that keeps us one step above our competitors. That increases basis for all the crops we produce, that enables us to produce as much oil as we want. Because gas is a challenge if we don't find a home for it. Um, it might not be a challenge right now because suddenly Europe's like, give us everything you got. But make no mistake, the moment things stabilize, they're going to whipsaw right back to where they were two weeks ago where gas was a liability. And so my point here is, 
as difficult as it is, and I know it's something that people are arguing about throughout the state right now, and I, I don't understand why, because the proof is in the data. $33.6 billion of value-added ag, value-added energy, and energy projects today. Those don't happen by themselves. And ideologically speaking, if we let that go too far and you kill these incentives, you're going to find that we're not going to be able to attract those projects anymore because Texas will, West Virginia will, Alaska will, Montana and Wyoming will. And, and they arguably are politically like us. But I'll tell make no mistake, when you look on the books at their tax legislation in South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana, they out-compete us. It's just I'm able to go in there right now with the story because of that feedstock, because of that carbon capture. But make no mistake, you pull that third leg from the stool, the stool doesn't stand anymore. And that's the most difficult part because people have a tendency to be against government involvement, but people need to understand that we're an enabler. We're not here to set policy. We're, we're here to say you can grow with us via innovation and not regulation. We believe that in other countries and other uh, companies, they believe that too. And that's why they're investing heavy in our state. That's why the Japanese, Canadians, and that's why companies across the United States are making their next big bet here because they believe in the innovative and not regulatory approach. And we right now have the right tools to do it. But if we lose access to those tools, the, the stool fails. It's that simple. Yeah. James, thank you. That was a, a lot of information and really important. And, and I hope I articulate this question correctly. The current black swan event, let's say when that's over, when that is, and we hope soon and in a very peaceful, humane way, frankly, when that is over, and there isn't too much disruption in what we're currently experiencing with regards to what we can provide the rest of the world, particularly in light of our carbon neutrality goal, carbon capture, and the importance that that plays in these discussions that you just talked about outside of the state of North Dakota. Now I'll start teeing it up. There's about 8 billion people on the planet, and that number is going to go up dramatically because the more people there are, the more people that are going to be produced, right? There isn't enough organic matter on the planet to quickly shift from petroleum-based fertilizers, which you have to have to produce the crops so people can eat. There just isn't, an, you just can't do it. There, there aren't enough cows or llama or sheep, and people don't want that anyway, right? So given what you just said, and the need for food globally, long-term, how much more significant could our role really be with the assets that we have, given what you just said? I am of the belief that we have room for about another $100 billion of capital expenditures in terms of the ability to add more value to products like corn and soy, as well as um, sort of clean energy attributes from using petroleum products. Let's let's be real. Like th this transition is a thirty to fifty year transition. It's not 
flip a switch and you got electric running in your vehicle and everybody suddenly we've got you know clean planet earth and whatever i mean th there's there's a reality in the middle right and that reality is we've 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 probably we're 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 at the point where we're the fourth highest GDP per capita in the country, and I believe by 2030 we can be the top. And to get there, there's there's enough room just to sell every carbon molecule, because uh, we figured out a way to monetize just about everything. What are other people's liabilities or other people's trash, I guess, is another people's treasure. And in, in this instance right now, carbon, which everybody perceives as a liability, is actually, in our opinion, something you can add value to six or seven times over. For example, and this will go back to your question, if we take everybody else's carbon and we move it into the Bakken, we can enhance oil recovery. We can produce carbon negative barrels of oil. And as we produce more oil, more cleanly with less water and less chemicals, then we're producing more gas. We're capturing that gas. We're adding value to that gas through sustainable aviation fuels, fertilizers, hydrogen, you name it. And then we're storing it and getting credits for like 45Q. Then at the same time, there are two or three additional layers of value you can add from your methanes, your ethanes, your polyethanes, plastics, rubbers, pharmaceuticals, etc. And so my point is, what was once a liability in Nebraska, which moves through a pipeline, or Iowa, into North Dakota, we can, figure, we can monetize that seven times over. And then we can get a premium on each of those attributes that I named because we're doing it cleaner and less expensively. And... Um, so I, I am of the belief there's probably about room for another hundred billion or so in big projects, but then we're not going to have any more products to sell. We're not going to have any more carbon to sell. All of that stuff will be just captured and, you know, entangled in 10 to 20 year offtake and supply agreements or wherever. Right. So we're on the right trajectory because, yeah, we're enjoying high prices now, but that volatility, like everybody knows here, is super cyclical. So to have the ability to sell it to ourselves and increase basis, add value to it here, will help us during downtimes. Um, and so as the U.S. you know goes further toward you know its clean energy, you know Washington they'll call it a transformation or transition or whatever. We recognize we can play a big part of that, but we could do it intelligently and we can do it maximizing and optimizing our attributes here. And so that's what the department focuses on. Like that's that's commerce. Commerce's reason to be is to increase and retain wealth in the state of North Dakota. It's a very simple mission statement. And to me, we've got another hundred billion dollars in, in, in unique projects to cultivate and recruit. And then we're probably at capacity at that point, <laughs> I think. So another hundred billion, you're working on 30 billion of the 30 billion what what's the number where they're online or just about to be online? That's that's about the thirty billion. I've got is, probably another twenty, and okay. we're not close enough yet to say let's start adding that to our number. Okay. Because because okay. think of it as an avalanche, right? That's that's what started, and now the ball's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Switching gears a little bit, but with what you just said as part of the equation or the question I'll ask. The talent required for the new projects online, whether it's the soybean or carbon capture or cryptocurrency mining, coupled with or joined with the current manufacturing concerns, 
you know, all of those in Wapaton and Jamestown and, and all of those. What does the talent pool look like? Look like, and you probably have a better handle on that than most, other than the people looking for it. What's the talent pool availability look like? So you're, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but when you take out seasonal labor, like construction workers, there are about 100 people on unemployment right now in the state of North Dakota. Take a step wow. back. When wow. you remove seasonal laborers, the talent pool, we're, we have by far the highest uh, labor participation rate in the United States. We do. And, you know, we can graduate every class across the state, college and high school, and we still wouldn't have, and the trajectory still wouldn't enable us to um, to meet demand. So as I sit here and talk to you, you know, the number's around 30,000 or so open jobs, but is the 10,000 jobs directly or indirectly relating to the Fargo diversion come online? When the 2,000 construction jobs for each of these major facilities is underway, that number, it increases rather substantially. And so what commerce is doing is taking a very systems, we're taking a systems level approach to try to solve the workforce problem. But I'll be honest, without creative policy tools, um, we're limited. And we've got some that we think we can make a short-term dent. In fact, we're going to announce them here very soon, you know, because the legislature gave us some money back in November uh, to help recruit workforce. But, you know, the reality is in-migration is, is going to be necessary. And, and I don't mean you've got to, you know, pull people from South America or whatever, but We've got to figure out more unconventional and creative mechanisms to get people to move to North Dakota. Um, I don't know if that's just a completely different branding campaign. I don't know if that's, you know, taking our curated, what we're doing right now on a much smaller scale and maybe making that larger. I, I don't know if that's making very significant changes to daycare policy in the state. You know, like there, there are a number of things that I think could be done but they're all going to be politically unpopular. Sure. It's just the way it is sure. because you got new people coming from places that, you know, what people don't understand they fear. And then you've got, you know, investments in areas that people may refer to as socialism or something. I mean, but if we don't do something, we're not going to fix the problem. So, yeah. and there's only so much wage inflation that small businesses in the state can incur because when they're competing against the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Fargo diversions, which have Davis bacon rates, which is federal wages and all of these things. And they can, you know, if small businesses can't pass the costs on to customers because we've already got 7% inflation, which I think is fictitious. Um, but my, my point is we've got to do something to help these companies. We've got to do something to ease the workforce burden in the state. And it's going to take just some very unpopular decisions, in my opinion, and just some. James, I couldn't agree with you more because the, the reality is if we don't have the talent, there are current companies that stand the risk of being shuttered. And once something's shuttered, it's rare that it opens back up. It, on the other hand, the investment that could come into the state, if the talent pool to operate that facility isn't there once once they're ready, that, that's a, a problem as well. And I'm going to say this, I, you don't have to 
weigh in if you don't want to because you have a very specific boss and you have a whole bunch of people that think you're your, is your that they think you're they're your bosses um i've always been really proud of saying I, i'm italian when in fact i'm really kind of a mutt uh, we've got italian german uh, russian and ukrainian in our family lineage my great grandmother was from the ukraine and in my opinion this black swan event, this terrible thing that's happening in Ukraine, on the other hand, really presents an opportunity for places like North Dakota to bring people to our state, uh, if they're willing, of course, to, to leave that part of the country permanently. We have an opportunity to provide uh, opportunities to them opportunities to our state, opportunities to current employers and future employers, if we're willing to look at things differently, which is kind of what you said. And I agree with you 100%, by the way. Got another question for you. You have a magic wand. And you can wave it over the heads of North Dakota residents, citizens. What's the one thing you want them to know about the Department of Commerce and the work it's currently doing for the future of North Dakota? First, people need to know that there's a team of 60 or so people that work tirelessly and that are just dedicated to the state. You know, when the virus started, we deployed well in excess of $100 million of just grant money that had to get to small businesses right away. And we did so in an environment that was very difficult because of just uh, the way government works and, the, you know, and the, the fear factor associated with being punished for making the bad decision. And, and then simultaneous to that, people are dealing with the virus in their homes and their kids are at home, yet these people did everything humanly possible on nights, weekends, early mornings, you name it, they busted their humps. And then instead of leaving and, and, and you know, saying, I'm not going to do this, they, they stuck it out. And then they stuck it out going into a legislative session where, you know, because of that sort of libertarian leaning philosophy, people don't understand who we are or what we do. And they think we're just a bunch of corporate welfare when we're not. We're enablers. We're marketers. That's what we're, we're chief marketing officers that just happen to manage a few programs that help businesses make a decision between coming here and there. So I want North Dakotans to realize that there's a team that tirelessly works on their behalf. As industry is enjoying wage inflation, you know, and they're, you know, McDonald's is paying 20 bucks an hour plus college tuition. I, I'm a part owner of a restaurant chain and on the Minnesota side because I don't want a conflict of interest. And I know what we're paying in wages. You know, as we're looking at anywhere from 10 to 30 percent wage hikes across the private sector, my team is stuck at a percent and a half for two years. Yet they're not complaining. They're doing more. They're doing more and they're doing more with less. And at the same time, I need North Dakotans to understand that being the state with the highest export dependency in the United States, meaning you got 780 mouths to feed, but you got a lot of wheat and a lot of soy and a lot of corn, and you use 30,000 barrels a day of energy or of oil, 
yet we produced 1.1 million and it was 1.7 before the pandemic. People need to understand that we operate in, the glo in a global, globally competitive environment. So we catch a lot of flack because we're cultivating deals from the Japanese or a Chinese company made the decision to invest in a corn wet milling site here or you name it. But when you look at every ag product set that's sold in this state, you, if you look at where the, where the products go, they're global. They're not going to Washington State to feed Washingtonians. They're not going to Texans to feed Texans. They're being thrown on hopper cars. Technically, Canada is the importer. And then they're being loaded at the port of Vancouver and going to China. That's where a majority of our energy and our ag products go. And so I need North Dakotans to understand that this state, unless we're able to magically diversify the economy into a biomanufacturing and you know tech powerhouse, we're dependent on ag and energy and we're dependent on the globe around us. And that's that simple. We're dependent on how much people eat, how much they're willing to pay for it, how much energy they use, how much they're willing to pay for it. All of that is a requirement. And so if people understood that you've got a team that works tirelessly for them in a global environment, I think they would cut us more slack. That's the magic wand. Awareness. Yeah. Great answer. Kind of another magic wand question. And if you don't think you should answer it, that's okay too. <laughs> because it's really the legislature that makes this decision. We have the, one of the most unique institutions in the country. We have the North Dakota Bank. We have, we have a bank owned by the citizens of North Dakota. It's a very unique asset. And given the cryptocurrency and how it's changing currency, it, do you think at some point in the future there's a role for the Bank of North Dakota to be involved in cryptocurrency? I do. In fact, I'll just, I'll just tell you what I think. Um, take carbon trading, right? We can establish a carbon market here if we wanted to, and we can become the envy of the upper Midwest by establishing a carbon market and then trading using crypto. And then every state around us would adopt a very similar standard because we have the financial institution to run this through. We could take a, a very small percentage of every transaction that occurs in this carbon trading market and we can make tons of money and take everybody else's money and invest it right back into the state and economic development projects or in property tax relief or in whatever the state legislature and the governor decide to invest in. But my point is, we have an institution that's very, in my opinion, well positioned, but we also have business cases that we could take and combine the two and go really big and bold. I believe that. And now that I've traveled to El Salvador, I went for a vacation. I went for a three-day vacation. I went on a religious pilgrimage. My patron saint was killed there, and I, I kind of wanted to do his last few days just to feel it and understand it. But when I was there, I'm able to transact with anybody, including some ladies selling tortillas, or their pupusas, they're called, basically, in San Salvador. You know, 30-cent transaction, but I'm able to use my phone, tap to her phone, and pay in 
think she said it was like 18 Shitoshi, which is like the smallest unit of Bitcoin you can pay. And it's like one one hundredth millionth of a Bitcoin. And so, you know, to see a society that is arguably among the poorest in the Western Hemisphere leapfrog everybody else. I'm like, man, it's game on because we have the tools here. The question is, what do we do? How do we do it? And, you know, it's obviously a decision the bank, the bank's board and the legislature are going to have to make. But there's a real opportunity there, in my opinion, a major opportunity there. It's the art of the long view. And if, if we're not doing that, uh, we're at risk. I agree with you, by the way. And, and I don't know much about it. I just had to read the definition, right? Um, but I agree with you. You're, you're at the table or you're on the menu. <laughs> right? So that's, that's, that's how I see it. So the future is bright, isn't it, Jim? For this state, the future is immensely bright. And I don't mean because oil's trading a buck and a quarter and, uh, you know, wheat's trading at 14 bucks or whatever. I, it's bright because the value-added potential that this state hasn't been able to realize, it's starting to realize. And do it in a way that establishes high-paying, well-curated jobs and better funded and just just nicer communities for the future, which attract workforce and attract more development. And the list goes on. And so all of these factors are coming together, in my opinion, now for this state. And uh, it's a magical time to support just sort of the natural trajectory that this state has been on for the last several decades. And now these things are starting to pay off. So it's, uh, it's great to be a part of it. That's for sure. Yeah. James, I sure appreciate you, the work that you're doing, and your team. You have an incredible team. You, you, you all work really well together. Back to the pandemic thing, the way you all turned on a dime, you really did. And in some ways, the pandemic became a real blessing, I think, because of uh, how you're working, how you're collaborating, and the synergies that were created. Just really appreciate you. This may be the most important question I have. I haven't heard the Pomeranian in the last 45 minutes. You're still alive, isn't it? Oh, he went. So I don't, when the mail guy comes, you get like, <laughs> so he's, he's around. Pomeranian's name is Enzo. Okay. Hey, James, thanks so much. Appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. Take, thanks for taking time. I know you're busy. You bet, Mike. Thank you for having me on the show.